If you've been here for a little while, you might remember, you might have noticed anyway, that uh, the past few times I've been able to, uh, to be up here and talk with you on a Sunday, I've kind of gotten in the habit, I've been on a, a little bit of a kick where I'm telling stories about my time in Las Vegas. Uh, for those of you who don't know the boring story, I, um, my first job out of college was as a church planting pastor in Las Vegas. And uh, so I told you about the, the, the story about how we kind of, I had this kind of incredible experience with God and then the thing sort of fell apart anyway. Uh, you may remember a, a, a story also about me being terrified by what I thought was a deadly rattlesnake, but which turned out to be a tiny plastic lawn sprinkler. <laughs> Um, so I have one more Las Vegas story for you this morning, and then maybe I'll be able to get it off my mind for a while. You won't have to listen to any more of them, but, um, this one, uh, I think you might find kind of interesting. Uh, my friend Kevin and I, Kevin was the other pastor who, uh, I was working with. He was actually the lead pastor on that church planting team in Las Vegas. He and I had already decided to go out, but, but before we made the actual move, we made kind of a little recon trip. We flew to Las Vegas for about a weekend um, once. This was several months before we were set to move, just to kind of scope things out and see what what it was like there. Uh, I had never been to Las Vegas. He'd only been once or twice. So we decided it would be good if we could get out there a little ahead of time and, and see if we could figure out some stuff about the city and what made it tick and that kind of thing. So the first thing we did when we got there was to find a brothel where we could spend the night And um, it worked out really well for us, actually, because the madam there at this brothel, um, I still remember her name was Catherine Bluff. Um, She turned out to be really useful and very kind to us. Um, We had stayed the night there, and and, uh, the next day we sort of told her our story, what we were doing, why we were going to Las Vegas. And she was captivated by this story, and she immediately said, I feel like God is telling me I need to help you in any way that I can. I believe that you are here to, to bring about change in people's lives by the power of Jesus, and I just want to help you any way I can. So this, this brothel madam, Catherine Bluff, um, turns out she knew a lot about the city. She knew about its laws, and its, I mean, if you're going to operate a business in Las Vegas, you've got to learn this stuff. Zoning regulations... Very helpful. Um, she gave us great advice about certain parts of the city that we might want to operate in and other parts we might want to avoid and which community leaders we want to get in good with and which community leaders we want to kind of avoid and connected us with a great realtor. And so when we came back to the city for real this time, we were in great shape. We were set up for success um, in a way that we never would have been if it weren't for the kindness of this woman. And, uh, you know, if you know the rest of the story, you know we didn't actually have, like, ultimate great success. I'm back here, after all. Um, but what success we did have was due in large part to the, this kind brothel madam named Catherine Bluff. So I might as well tell you now, uh, if you haven't figured it out, <laughs> that that's not actually a true story. Um, that wasn't her name. Uh, no. <laughs> um, no, the story is entirely untrue. Uh, <laughs> and actually, you probably figured that out pretty quickly when I started telling this story, because after all, um, the very idea that we would go to Las Vegas 
on, on a, a mission from God, like literally, and the first thing we would do is go to a, a brothel. You know, that's absurd. Um, and even more absurd than that is the idea that, that God would use this harlot, you know, because there are kids in the room, I won't use the nastier term, to advance the good of his kingdom. That's crazy, right? Well, <laughs> you can tell from the way I'm setting this up that that's not actually also all that crazy, even though it's untrue that that happened to me. <laughs> I'll be very clear, I did not visit any brothels in Las Vegas ever. Um, but the passage that we want to look at today from the book of Joshua has a story that's not entirely unlike the crazy one that I just told you. So let me set that up for you briefly, and then we'll look at, at Joshua chapter 2. And while I'm setting it up, if you want to find it in your Bibles, um, it's Joshua chapter 2. If you, if you don't have a Bible, reach under your chair. There's a red hardcover Bible under every chair. And look for page 169. That's where you'll find this story. Um, and if you don't have a Bible of your own and would like to take one with you, you're welcome to take one of those. That's one of the reasons we have them here. So... Um, before we get into this, this chapter, I'll tell you briefly what had kind of happened leading up to this event. After the Israelites, the people of God, had been miraculously freed from slavery in Egypt, God led them up out of Egyptian slavery, uh, and then they kind of did nothing but grumble and complain for 40 years, and God delayed their entry into this land that he had promised them because of their grumbling. And what we're picking up here is the events that happened just after the last grumbler from that first generation died. Because that's what God said. You know, all of you are going to die before you go in. Only your children and children's children will see the land. Um, so Moses dies, and the leadership of God's people is turned over to Joshua. And if you were here at the gallery on Wednesday, you may remember that great early, that great passage from Joshua 1, which Jason set up terrifically well. And it has a really important um, request from God to be strong and courageous and go where I'm leading you. And the series that we are involved in for the next several weeks is titled after our answer to God when he calls us to something big. And what is our answer when God calls us to something big? We will. You may remember Jason setting that all up on Wednesday if you were at the gallery. So, <clears throat> Joshua has told the people, we're going to take the land and we're going to be strong and courageous and literally as a plan of attack, because they're not going to go and um, take this city peacefully. One of the things we have to deal with in the, in the Bible is this kind of violence uh, that happens here. But um, literally as a plan of attack, Joshua is going to send two spies into the border town of Jericho and scope out the land, okay? So this is where we're picking it up in Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 14 verses here to start out. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, Some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. 
And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. She had, however, brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before they went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that dread of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, Our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. And then the passage will go on to give some specifics of how that deal actually worked out. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for now, I want to put forward to you what I think is a fairly clear and obvious message from this passage. And it's the title of today's sermon, Unlikely Allies. How unlikely is it that God would choose to use this woman, Rahab, to advance his plan to bring his people into the promised land? How crazy is that? Let's count the ways that she would be an unlikely ally to the Israelites. One, she was a Gentile. Jews were not supposed to have any contact with Gentiles. Two, she was a woman. And men were not supposed to have any contact with women to whom they were not married. Let alone the type of contact that maybe they had with her. I'm talking about not even supposed to, like, touch her. <laughs> Three, she was a prostitute. And the text does not state this explicitly. Um, maybe I'll say overtly. <laughs> it's certainly not explicit. But it's not direct at all. But I'm guessing that they did not stop at this house for dinner. <laughs> That's kind of troubling, isn't it? She was a liar. She lied directly to the representatives of the king. You may remember one of the Ten Commandments was, you shall not bear false witness. So there's all these ways, all these reasons why Rahab would not be the person God would choose. But as you may have noticed in your own life, if you have followed God or witnessed others following God, God doesn't always do things the way we expect him to do them. We don't always get to pick the types of people that he uses. God gets to pick those people. 
And it's kind of important that we leave that up to God. Otherwise, we'd be sunk too. So she's a Gentile. She's a woman. She's a prostitute. She's a liar. And yet God uses her to save his people. And here's a really kind of intriguing subpoint to this. Look at verse 12. God used her immediately in her present state. Verse 12, now then, since I have dealt, this is her talking, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, sure thing, just close up this brothel first and all the men in your house, you're going to want to have them circumcised. And you have some idols here. You need to destroy those. Get some proper clothing. And oh, by the way, here's a list of 613 laws that we Israelites follow that were given to Moses while we were in the wilderness. And this is how you are holy. So why don't you study up on these? And when we get back, we'll give you a little quiz and see if you are okay for us to deal with. No. (laughs) That's not at all what they said. They said what? Our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when, you when the Lord gives us the land. Talk about an unlikely ally. And apparently God didn't require her to clean up her acts totally and completely before she was employed in the work of his kingdom. What about the spies themselves? We're so caught up looking at Rahab and what a horrible person she is that, you know, look at the spies. Let's not forget the first thing they did when they came into Jericho. Where did they stop? It was not the In-N-Out Burger. (laughs) They were visiting with a woman who was not their wife. She was a woman of ill repute. And they stayed the night with her. And again, I'm not so sure it was because of her biscuits and gravy. And lastly, did they even do what Joshua asked them to do? What does Joshua ask them to do? Verse 1. Go what? View the land. They weren't viewing the land. (laughs) I'm not sure what they were looking at, but it was not the land. Now, it worked out. God tends to work out things in spite of our lousy job of being obedient. uh, And in spite of the fact that we surround ourselves with people who are less than perfect and we ourselves are less than perfect. I mean, talk about a ragtag bunch. You've got these idiot spies and their new prostitute friend. <laughs> and the fate of God's people is resting in these six hands. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so, this... <laughs> I heard that. So this unlikely allies thing, yes, thank you for that noise, Dante. Uh, This unlikely allies thing is really, I mean, it's a profound message, but I think it's, I mean, it's kind of an obvious one too. If you read this story and and I asked you to come up with a sermon title or at least a sermon topic, you probably would come up with something similar to what I just said, that God will use whomever he pleases and that 
God doesn't always, and in fact, theologically speaking, never chooses people who are all perfect and good and right to work his plan out. That's a pretty basic straight-ahead message. But when I was reading this passage this past week, and I was kind of meditating on it, I couldn't help but be drawn to a secondary story. Um, And so I want to give you a little bonus sermon (laughs) here. Two for the price of one, uh, and I promise it won't be any longer than one. Because when I was reading this story, I, now you're going to say to me, Scott, you have Christian lenses. Of course you're going to see this. But when I was reading this story, I couldn't help but see Jesus throughout this story. Now remember what Jason said on Wednesday. When you're reading the book of Joshua and you see Joshua as leader of the people, do not put your pastors in those shoes. Joshua does not equal Scott or Jason or Mike. Joshua does not equal anybody on our leadership team or any of the people who lead our wonderful bands, or any of that stuff, Joshua is a type for Jesus, okay? So Jason's already put that out there. But let me kind of, let me lay down next to me in the meadow here, and let's look up at the clouds, and I'm going to tell you the shapes that I see in the clouds, okay? This is not like some great theological truth. You could put this up against church history. It may not stand up, but I'm going to tell you what I see in the clouds looking at this passage, okay? Okay? It's a water buffalo. (laughs) You're like, no, that's a Mack truck. Um, But seriously, uh, I just want to kind of share with you my personal experience for this passage because I found some stuff in here that I thought was kind of interesting. And I very much saw Jesus in this story. So let me read to you the the end of this chapter, starting in verse 15. This is where we left off before. And I'll just make a couple of observations afterward. This is, again, the the specifics of how Rahab helped the people and saved the spies. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the outer side of the city wall, and she resided within the wall itself. She said to them, Go toward the hill country, so that the pursuers may not come upon you. Hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We will be released from this oath that you have made us swear to you if we invade the land and you do not tie this crimson cord in the window through which you let us down and you do not gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your family. If any of you go out the doors of your house into the street, they shall be responsible for their own death and we shall be innocent. But... If a hand is laid upon any who are with you in the house, we shall bear the responsibility for their death. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be released from this oath that you made us swear to you. She said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away and they departed. Then she tied the crimson cord in the window. Notice she did that immediately. She didn't know when they were coming back, but she knew that cord was going in the window as soon as they were out the door. They departed and went into the hill country and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers had searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men came down again from the hill country. They crossed over, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before us. 
So where do I see Jesus in this passage? And again, this is like, this is me laying in the meadow, looking up at the clouds. You don't have to agree with me on this stuff, but it's, I think it's fascinating. The first thing is this red cord that she hangs in the window. To me, that immediately reminded me of the story of Passover. Is anybody else reminded of that when you read that? The story of the Passover is when the, when the Israelites were still in slavery in Egypt and Moses had, led, had been going to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and saying, let my people go. The, the Lord says, let my people go. And the Pharaoh refused to do it and refused to do it and refused to do it. So God sent a series of plagues on the Egyptian people, um, each one worse than the one that was before it. And Pharaoh would still not relent. And so God sent the uber plague at the end, which was the Passover, um, which became the celebration of Passover because he said, I will send the angel of death to kill the firstborn in every family. And the Israelites were to slaughter a lamb and sprinkle its blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would, would see that this was one of God's people, one of God's families, and would pass over that house. And it's a, it's a sacred, holy celebration in the Jewish faith to this day. And it's very clear in the New Testament, I mean, reference after reference after reference, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. It is he who is slain and whose blood is, metaphorically speaking, sprinkled on our doorpost. The blood, literally, but the doorpost metaphorically. So that we can be saved from spiritual death. Let me give you just one example of that from the book of 1 Corinthians. This is Paul writing in chapter 5, verse 7. Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch as you really are unleavened. For our Paschal Lamb, our Passover Lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That unleavened bread stuff just refers to the way the Israelites celebrated the uh, the Passover as well, uh, and the special meal they were to eat on that night. But Christ is a Passover lamb. And so when I see Rahab hanging that red cord in her window, I immediately think of the red blood on the doorposts during the, the 10th plague in Egypt. And when I think of the Passover, I immediately think of Jesus, our Passover lamb. And so in, a, in an interesting, strange kind of way, I see Jesus, no pun intended, a thread of Jesus, a cord of Jesus running right through this story. Another kind of interesting thing, when the, when the men, the spies, she tells them to go into the hills, how long do they stay there in the hills? Three days. How long was Jesus in the tomb? Three days after being executed on the hills. <laughs> Again, it's just shapes in the clouds. But that's I think kind of like the cool stuff that you can find in this story of Scripture when you begin to try to put this stuff together. Even Rahab lowering them out the window makes me think of one of the coolest stories in the New Testament where Jesus is in teaching in this crowded house and four men bring their friend on a pallet who's crippled and they can't get into the house so they go up to the top and they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down to Jesus. Rahab lowering these men down uh, into, into safety. 
through the roof. So again, that's just me. I, I see Jesus all through this story. Um, and obviously, I have, that, I have those glasses on. I have the Christian lenses, and I know some of you do too. But perhaps that's meaningful to you as well. So I've given you two stories, two sermons here. The unlikely allies one, and the Jesus as our Passover lamb, as our Savior one. But really... Here's the catch. I think that the two stories are the same in a lot of ways. Why do I say that? Because Jesus was the all-time greatest at gathering around himself the most unlikely allies you could imagine. Who were some of the people that Jesus hung around with? The disciples. Yeah. Peter and Paul. Peter, the guy who couldn't keep a promise for a day... Paul, who he, came, he, he appeared to after his resurrection, who had been slaughtering Christians, <laughs> tax collectors, sinners of all sorts, drunkards, partiers, women of ill repute, <laughs> adulterers, lepers, liars, gamblers and robbers. <laughs> Jesus was the all-time greatest at this unlikely allies thing. See? And he's still doing it now. Isn't he? We've got a couple minutes. Maybe you'd be willing to... This would be kind of a fun thing to do. I want you to shout out to me somebody you think that Jesus might, might want to use that we would maybe in the church go, Oh, I'm not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> George Bush. <laughs> What's that? Terrell Owens. <laughs> I think Stacy, you always shout out the ones related to the Bills or the Sabers. I don't. I don't think. I don't think Jesus has anything to do with T.O. <laughs> Stalin. Wow. <laughs> this is getting heavier than I planned. <laughs> I was kind of thinking you'd, you'd say like the hippie farmer's market people who, we, <laughs> who we've kind of gotten connected with here. What's that? You're not even sure about yourself, Wayne. Very interesting that you would say that. Because this is what I want to leave you with. God draws to himself unlikely allies. Jesus is the all-time greatest at the unlikely ally thing. And Jesus wants to use you, too. You may be imperfect. Pretty sure you are, actually. You might think you're untalented. You may be broken down, cynical, doubting. You may even be an agnostic. And I think Jesus wants to use you for his kingdom. And if you kind of feel in your soul and hear in your heart Jesus saying to you that he wants to use you, what do you suppose I would suggest is the answer you should give him? (laughs) I will. Even though I'm not sure I'm any good, I'm not so sure about myself, Wayne said, Jesus wants to use you, and your answer ought to be, I will.
And I think that as imperfect and broken down and cynical as this community is, as this church, this gang of rabble-rousers that we call Artisan Church may be, I think God wants to use us too. And what is our answer when he calls us to do something bold and courageous? We will. (laughs) We will. Even if that means that we ourselves have to end up teaming up with some unlikely allies. Some people maybe in our community who we wouldn't have put at the top of the list that God may bring in to our midst. And we need to remember Rahab and Peter and Paul and Wayne (laughs) and say we will even though the allies may be unlikely. Because the ultimate kind of cosmic reality in all of this is that we're all unlikely allies. None of us is fit. And that's the message of the cross. That Jesus took that lack of fitness, that falling short, that failure on himself. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this wonderful story of Rahab, the Gentile woman lying prostitute, and the two idiot spies who couldn't follow orders and who were not in the place they should have been, and yet you used all of them. We give you great thanks for that story because in it we see ourselves, our own stupidity, our own shortcomings, our own failings. And we ask very simply today that you would give us the courage, that you would help us to be strong and courageous so that when Jesus calls us to do something bold, we might answer, we will. And also, Lord, we pray that you would give us a little bit extra grace when it comes to dealing with the people around us whether it's the person sitting right next to us right now who we don't quite get along with, or whether it's somebody you're going to bring into our community who looks wrong, who acts wrong, who comes from the wrong part of town, help us to give the grace to them, just a portion of it that you've given to us. And through it all, that your kingdom would be advanced. We pray in the name of Jesus your Son, and our Lord. Amen. It's over here this week. (laughs) This is our response to hearing God's Word every single week at Artisan. To come to His table and to celebrate communion together. And one of the ways that we often invite people to communion is this. I haven't said this in a while, but I'm going to say it this morning. If you're not sure whether you should take communion today, imagine it this way. The communion uh, sacrament just comes from the Last Supper with Jesus' disciples where he had a meal with them. And I'd like to say to you, if you were at that meal and Jesus said, here is bread and wine, if you want to hang with me, eat it. (laughs) If you would say yes to something like that, that Jesus asks... I think it's probably okay for you to come take communion. 
Um, you know what else is okay? If, if you think that you would probably say no, it's okay for you to be here. We love having you here, actually. So make that decision for yourself. And if you're going to come to take communion, it's very simple. Just tear off a piece of the bread, remembering his broken body, and dip it in the wine or the juice, whatever would be most appropriate for you or your family, representing his shed blood, and take that in faith. Receive it as spiritual nourishment. And as always, remember that that is the great equalizer. That sacrifice that Jesus made means that I'm not any better than you, and you're not any better than the person next to you, and that person's not any better than the person who hasn't even shown up and walked through these doors yet. So as you're taking communion, remember that we're all unlikely allies. And we're going to sing and worship some more, uh, but this table will be open for the rest of our time together, and I'd encourage you to come as soon as you're ready.